The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's nice to be together with everyone. <clears throat> and we have our live chat with people checking in there. People who haven't figured out that might explore. It just can help us feel together as a community just... A lot of it is just our own imagination, sensing that there are other people here listening, interested in these practices that we've learned from the Buddha on down, our lineage of folks before us who they had complicated lives. They probably had pandemics and other challenging experiences, but somehow one generation after another of people before us stumbled upon these teachings, resonated with them, learned them, integrated them into their lives, developed more mindful awareness, really gained some wisdom, developed some compassion, and found a way to pass them along to the next generations. And now, in this online way, we are the next reverberation of these practical and profound teachings from the Buddha, and we're hearing them, and we're reflecting on them together, and hopefully we're integrating them in our daily lives, and when we can, with some uh, formal sitting practice where the conditions are more simple and supportive for basically bringing that mindful presence more directly to the nature of the mind itself, and learning a thing or two. And it's like that over time that wisdom grows. We're developing this continuity of mindful awareness and fits and starts. Over time, more and more continuity and therefore more and more insight and more awakening or sensing, intuiting the freedom, the love and the fearlessness, the resilience that's here, even when conditions are really difficult as they probably are for some of you, financial or health-wise or whatever it might be. So a lot of you know we've been looking at the Buddhist teachings on the Eightfold Path, and we've been using a more simple breakdown of the Eightfold Path into these three sections of the path. The Wisdom section, which initially the Wisdom section of the path, of our own spiritual path, is learning through life and our own bumping our head against the wall and making mistakes and learning a thing or two, we develop the sense it really matters how I'm showing up. And it really, that insight that it matters is directly undermining habits of uh, hopelessness and valuing distraction because nothing matters I might as well seek as many sense pleasures as I can in my life. So I'm more interested in the new restaurant or more interested in this and that than I am at looking at my heart, understanding life more deeply. So that's the basic insight. And when it matters, right, then we have that confidence that it matters. And then we're more willing to use our life energy to take care of the one instrument that's going to help us, which is this capacity to see clearly. 
So we've, in the last few weeks, been talking about the four exertions. It's this part of the path that's really about how we make effort to stabilize awareness. And really, it comes out of it matters, and it comes out of what we've learned, like what is helpful and what isn't helpful, what's skillful, what's not skillful. What avenues of thinking and imagining just destabilize the mind, scatter the mind, dissipate mental energies so that the mind's really not good for much. It's fried, can't see clearly, caught up in its own projections. Well, that mind isn't anybody's friend. And so we've learned, all of us, wherever we are, we've been learning like what qualities of mind we trust, what qualities of mind we don't trust. So effort really comes out of that basic insight about what's skillful and unskillful. And we just naturally, of course, try to prevent the mind from going in directions that we found. Like if we found that being obsessive about, you know, the if only, then I'll be happy pattern, if we find that's been dry and feeling betrayed by that never leading to real happiness, well, then we start to like, be suspicious whenever the mind's going toward its next obsession. Like, do I really want to go down that road? And this effort to abandon and prevent the mind from going down that way, that path, that just gets stronger. And then, you know, there are whole qualities of mind that we begin to trust, like the heart that's kind, the heart that's forgiving, the heart that's willing to be close and intimate and feel. And so we start to value that we want to develop and maintain those qualities that together, when they're in balance, make up samadhi, this beautiful, stable, clear presence. So, you know, what I've just described is really sometimes talked about the five spiritual faculties. A lot of you have heard this teaching in some lineages in early Buddhism, This particular map is used a lot. The confidence that it matters, leading to a willingness to make effort to abandon and prevent unskillful qualities from dominating mind, to develop and maintain skillful qualities of mind. Right, That allows for the mind to really be intimate, be mindful of what's showing up in the moment. And with enough continuity of mindfulness, a beautiful stability arises. And it really feels good. Samadhi feels good in an inner sense. The heart feels right. It feels solid in a sense. It feels powerful, like uh, set. Not in, in that things are static, but it knows how to meet life because it feels this inner integrity of this stable present moment awareness, and no matter what is coming and going, pleasant experience, unpleasant experience, neutral experience, it it has enough momentum. And so that stability is not only healing immediately, but it also allows for the deepening of understanding, the deepening of wisdom. So then the mind really understands that it matters, because it's seen more clearly how suffering arises, how it can be prevented and dropped. And so it really wants to be more vigilant. It's more, it has more confidence that it matters. It's willing 
to exert itself skillfully to abandon what's not helpful, develop what's helpful, because it knows it matters. So it really knows, it learns a lot about how to be intimate and to sustain that. And in doing that, to have more samadhi, more of that um, stability of the heart and mind that is right in the middle. And the and to be nourished, in a sense, by that wholesome pleasantness. There's a pleasure in being present with some stability, with some continuity. It feels right. It feels good. Even when the circumstances or conditions in the moment are really painful, it still feels good to really be there. And if we really reflect, we probably have our own experiences of difficult moments. Those of you with children, for example, you probably remember times when in a difficult interaction with your child, you really were there. And there wasn't wavering, there wasn't distractedness, there wasn't superficial, superficiality in the mind. The mind was really there feeling what you're feeling, sensing, intuiting where the child's at. And in that stability, even though it might have been a really messy or difficult situation you needed to to navigate with your child or your partner or somebody at work. It could be any interaction, of course. But if you if you bothered to look, you would have noticed that even though this situation is painful, the way the heart, the way the mind is showing up and handling it feels really good. It's really trustworthy. And that's the, we're learning to actually um, be nourished not so much by some sense pleasure that, as even the nicer sense pleasures, like good friendship or a nice meal or good sleep or these wholesome pleasures, sense pleasures, they're pretty ephemeral. But the thing about samadhi and meeting life with real intimacy, with more continuity over time, that kind of pleasure is much more satisfying than even the nicest sense pleasures that we're able to get from time to time in life, hanging out with good friends where everybody's harmonious, right? So even those very wholesome things, having that stability of present moment awareness is a much more resonant and trustworthy worthy and satisfying pleasure. And here's the kicker, it leads to the deepening of wisdom, which brings about slowly over time, gradually over time, a real uh, profound kind of freedom begins to creep into the heart, a kind of space, no matter the conditions, a kind of lightness and nimbleness and love that isn't dependent on particulars. It's like felt or seen or experienced as the background or like the space of the mind and heart itself. The quality of the space of the mind itself is freedom, is intimacy, is non-fear. But it's hard to talk about that more profound freedom that gradually emerges over time in practice. As uh, I think once somebody asked the Dalai Lama about that and he, he mentioned something like, yeah, if I look back over a month, I may not notice that much change. But if I look back five or ten years, I really do sense that deepening, that growing freedom, that beautiful space of compassion, 
that's just there whenever wisdom bothers to check. Now, of course, when we're distracted, then wisdom isn't bothering to sense that freedom, that wisdom, that love. But when that wisdom is there, it wants to keep it in mind, the fruits of our practice. So I want to move from wise effort to more of a discussion on mindfulness. Because this third part of the practice, we have wisdom, we have bringing initial wisdom to action, and then we have bringing this initial wisdom to how we take care of the mind. So this section we've been, I've been calling these talks, taking care of the heart and mind. And I think this may be the fifth in those talks. And in this section of taking care of the heart and mind, we talk about wise effort, these four exertions of preventing and abandoning what's unwholesome and developing and maintaining what's wholesome. And this allows us to connect. And the Buddha has some teachings about how to connect with the activity of the present moment, which is the activity of the body and the mind. The present moment is always and only made up of the activity of the body and mind. The activity of the body are the five senses, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching and seeing, and the activity of mind is everything else. And all life long, the totality of our experiencing is just these six things. This activity of the body as five, the sensitivity of the five physical senses, and the sensitivity to the activity of the heart and mind, including emotions, right? So we have these six activities, and this is the realm of this teachings on the four foundations of mindfulness, the four establishments, four frames of reference. These are how people talk about satipatthana, the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness. And it's not so much saying, the Buddha isn't just saying simply to be aware of the activity of the body and mind. He's really helping us with these teachings that we're going to be looking at for the next couple of weeks, satipatthana. He's really helping us um, transform how we perceive, how we connect with the body and mind, what we call the body and mind. Because, you know, of course, we have our conditioned ways of projecting meaning on what we call the body and what we call the mind. And that thinking, that idea we have about the body and mind, in a way, creates a boundary or barrier from actually being intimate with the body and the mind. But before I get into some of the details with these foundations of mindfulness, just the beginning of this discourse, because it's it's really conducive, I think, to confidence, uh, deepening of confidence. So here the Buddha is introducing why the why we might be interested in developing mindfulness. He says, This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and distress, for the attainment of the right method, and for the real realization of unbinding freedom. In other words, the four frames of reference. Which four? There is the case where a practitioner remains aware of the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to all our worldly ideas about the body. 
one remains focused on feelings, the feeling tone, the mental qualities, mind qualities, in and of themselves, ardent, alert, mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. So the, the four are the activity of the body, and then the mind is these last three. The Buddha specifically emphasizes awareness of feeling tone, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality. We'll get there next week. He emphasizes awareness of the mind, the qualities of mind, how narrow, tight, how open, expansive the mind is, how stable it is, distracted or not. And then this last frame, this last uh, place for awareness is really seeing the present moment and in particular the mind in terms of the uprooting or the putting aside of what's unskillful and the development and balancing of the skillful qualities of mind. Is this mind suitable for seeing things as they are, for insight, the deepening of insight? That's really this last frame. So four frames and these teachings that we're going to cover in the next few weeks, it's not just being aware of the body and the three aspects of the mind. It's really what is actually now in the way of seeing things clearly. So when we look at the Buddhist teachings on body, it's really about uprooting bad habits of how we relate to the body. It turns out to be more what this discourse is about than anything else. So, you know, it's very hard, like if we just check in with our body right now, and we might be somewhere, somewhat aware of just that feeling of the buttocks on the chair, on the cushion, and we might have some sense of like temperature, I'm a little cold, I'm a little warm. But it's just interesting how quickly our experience of the body reverts back to some conclusion, some idea that we have about the body. Or even more subtly, I notice this, I'm sure a lot of you do, how quickly my experience of the body is some mental image. So it's almost like the mind, some aspect of the mind is a videographer or portrait painter, you know, and there's this sort of, maybe it's prompted like, how's the body doing? So I check in, but very quickly, what I catch the mind being aware of is some mental portrait of the body or some mental idea of the body and not directly, immediately aware of physicality, the, the elements of the body as temperature, hardness, softness, the quality of movement, the quality of stillness in the body, and the other related thing that the Buddha in the teachings on the Satipatthana related to the body is trying to uproot is just the habit of seeing bodies in terms of ugly or beautiful. And, you know, it's so common, especially the way that through culture and probably even genetics, where, you know, sexual attraction is woven in um, to to sort of just fixate on certain superficial qualities of a body and then the mind interprets that as pleasant 
or the mind interprets that as not pleasant, and then that becomes a kind of fixedness. You know, when in fact, in actuality, these things are relatively superficial. You know, if we took piles of skin from a group of people, some of whom we would, in a condition where I think of as being attractive and others we think of as being not attractive, you know, in terms of a pile of stuff, the bones and the skin and the hair and the nails and the organs, and, you know, they'd be pretty indistinguishable, these different piles of these 10 people. Um, even though in a cultural setting, we might have a very different response to those 10 bodies when they're all put together and decorated in the way we tend to decorate the body, we might be sort of completely transfixed on some body and completely oblivious to other bodies because they don't ring our bell, you know, they don't attract us. And so it's good to learn to see through the surface, like the way my mind through genetics, through culture has been trained to see bodies and my own body when I look in the mirror or sense it, how I've been trained to interpret it as attractive or not attractive, and to see it in a more natural way as just a, a bunch of parts. And the image the Buddha uses, which I think is such a brilliant image, is a, you can imagine a burlap sack filled with different seeds and beans, right? And there are grass seeds and sesame seeds and sunflower seeds and kidney beans and millet and quinoa and every, you know, rice, brown rice, basmati rice, white rice, every grain, right? Well, you know, if we opened up that burlap sack and looked inside, probably, <laughs> I'm guessing, most of our minds wouldn't, like, be sort of transfixed on certain of the beans or certain of the uh, seeds. Like, oh my God, look at that grain of rice because it would be observed, would be sensed as just ordinary stuff, just a bunch of seeds and beans being seen, being known. And this is the image the Buddha uses, like to cultivate this image with our body. And a lot of people misunderstand this teaching as somehow the body, like thinking the Buddha saying that we should see the body as disgusting. Because, you know, normally when we think about an organ like pulling out my liver or putting my skin in a bunch uh, in a little section over here or the that oh that's a disgusting but that's sort of an interesting conclusion because the skin is here the organs are here the blood the toes the hair the head all this stuff is just what it is and it's neither beautiful nor ugly it's just a bunch of nat natural stuff. When we walk through the woods, uh, when and I went out to Prairie Farm, Common Grounds Retreat property on Friday and did some work, but also had some time to take a walk through the woods. And because there are few leaves, or no leaves now, the, the thing that was radiant were all the mosses in the forest. And they had really come alive. It was a relatively warm day and moist enough and the mosses just seemed the only living thing in the forest. And it was so fun just to see that world of a lot of dead leaves, 
a lot of brown bark, a lot of twigs, and that's really uh, illuminated or um, just bright, luminous mosses um, throughout the forest on different trunks and rocks and things. But just to look at whatever we might look at, just one more dead oak leaf, right? That's not ugly compared to the luminous moss next to it. They're just ordinary stuff doing their ordinary thing. So this is good homework for us this week and for weeks, of course, forever, to when we're around bodies that we would be oblivious to, to really practice being intimate with that person's body as a body, skin, bones, flesh, organs, you know, all the ordinary components, just sensing that same there as here. And then when you're around somebody you find really attractive, spellbinding, you know, it's like hard to be around them because it activates so much attraction. To just practice, maybe with a little distance, maybe with your imagination later, but to practice imagining that body or seeing that body as just that ordinary stuff of flesh, skin, bones, organs, stuff like that, neither beautiful nor ugly. Or somebody that, you know, for whatever reason, age, size, skin disease, whatever it might be that triggers a repulsion, um, to then just, again, just see the ordinariness of what that body is made up of. And you might find that this is very transforming, like helping us to unhook from a lot of our genetic and cultural conditioning around bodies. And again, it isn't about having a, a repulsive relationship to bodies, but just have more grounded, even, balanced relationship. It'd be interesting to see how that is. Um, and maybe today and uh, next week, feel free, it would be really useful actually if some of you take up this reflection to send in questions. You can send them to info at org, our main email address, and they'll get to me and uh, I'll sort of use some of those comments and questions for our um, discussion next Sunday as we continue. So the basic hub of our practice is this embodied awareness, but then we take up particular themes. So the particular theme we're going to work with this next week is the theme of the body, and we have these three reflections to work with. So it would be nice to remember these three. One is to use the uh, see bodies in terms of ordinary body parts, neither beautiful nor ugly, just ordinary. And to see attractive bodies this way, to see unattractive bodies this way, and to see neutral bodies, bodies you're neither attracted nor disgusted by this way. Yep, they got skin. They probably have flesh, organs. Yep, I'm guessing they have bones. And its essence, it's really not pretty or not pretty. It's just stuff, just natural stuff there. And then the other is to realize, this is a little bit more subtle, but to realize that when I'm feeling hot, when I'm feeling cold, when I'm feeling pressure, when I'm feeling lightness, 
when I'm feeling movement or stillness in my body, those elemental sensory experiences are not unique to me. When you feel movement or stillness, when you feel heaviness or lightness or hardness or softness or coldness or warmth, that's basically the same elements that I'm experiencing. Because when we're tuned into our bodily experience, you know, whatever the way it is for us right now, it always, like the mind's interpretation is this is uniquely me, this sort of sensory experience, but there's nothing unique to any of those component parts of my visceral experience, whether it's hardness or softness or heat or coolness. Those component experiences that each of us are having right now and always, there's nothing personal about that, right? And <clears throat> and this is like meant to kind of universalize this embodied experience, to uh, be a counterweight to the habit of personalizing our body's experience. Like, it's so uniquely me, you know? And so when we have a headache, or we're feeling great, you know, really vital in the body, or whatever kind of bodily experience, to realize, oh yeah, that's what people with bodies experience. Some, you know, some combination of all of the certain elements of my experience is what people are always experience in their body. It's not uniquely me. And then the last is, and I mentioned this in the guided meditation, is to experience body always as a movement, always as a flow. So whatever it is, the body's experience is in motion. It comes and goes. And even the body itself, which we forget, but it's just something that, it, that has taken birth, grew up, matured physically, right? And then, you know, I just had my birthday. And so every year, the body's getting a little older and it follows a very natural process, sometimes more quickly, sometimes more slowly. But you can bank on it. You know, the aging process is predictable. It's understandable. And nobody is immune from that process of change. And I'm sure many of you have heard, you know, these, these sort of facts of the body like that. Right now, this body, my body, your body, it doesn't have any cells that were there seven years ago. That every seven years, some of the cells, of course, are dying very quickly and being replaced cells of the skin, cells of the lining of the stomach, right? But other cells, you know, hang out, but none of them last more than seven years, evidently. So that's the thing, you know, we think, well, this is my body, but it's not really the same body we had even yesterday, let alone seven years ago or 20 years ago or 60 years ago. This body is in motion. And to keep that in mind, so again, those three reflections, Seeing all bodies as made up of ordinary pieces and parts, nothing attractive or disgusting about any of those parts. They're just ordinary stuff and really training in that way. Seeing that the sensations of the body are in no way unique to me or you. They're just these elements of a, of a sensation or universal. And that the body is always in motion, always changing following a very predictable birth, aging, sickness, and death. This is just the very nature of the body. So we're encouraged to keep this in mind all week long 
keep coming back to this and see if in keeping this in mind that our whole, the mind's, the heart's relationship to the body starts to move in the direction of less tightness, less of a weightful, entangled sense of body and more lightness, more freedom, more the sense of heart independent of the body. So when the body is healthy, it's not dependent on that health. When the body is unhealthy, it's not afflicted as much. Yeah, the body that's unhealthy will have certain unpleasantness, maybe even extreme pain, depending on the illness condition. But the mind, the heart, doesn't need to be entangled with that real physical pain. The mind, the heart, can understand, yep, this is natural. This is what happens when someone has a body, when there is this sensitivity to bodies. Sometimes it's deeply unpleasant, sometimes it's deeply pleasant, and it keeps changing, and it's, it's natural. And it really allows for freedom to come in. So Venerable Analio, who's done a lot of work on this sutta, this discourse, the Buddhist discourse on mindfulness, he writes in one of his more recent books on the Satipatthana, mindfulness of the body as the hub of the wheel is the entry door into a simple mode of practice that can be undertaken in any situation. Whatever we may be doing, the body is there. Becoming aware of the body in the way I recommend here is to sense the body, to feel it. Being aware of that felt sense of bodily presence takes place in a mental state of awareness of the present moment. Every moment of cultivating this practice and relating in Relating it in some way to insight is yet another step forward on the path of liberation, reflecting the main thrust of the fourth Satipatthana, this Satipatthana about the awakening, being aware of what supports awakening. So we're beginning over and over again with the body in a diligent way, clear way, keeping it in mind. So I want to end today by just um, reviewing a question that Renee sent in. Thank you, Renee. And again, encouraging people as you do this reflection <coughs> on the body to uh, send in any questions to the center. So Renee was asking about uh, um, doing their best to relate to someone skillfully with tenderness, compassion, supporting, helping them see what they're not seeing, but finding this person unaware and unskillful and noticing in them, Renee, noticing in themselves that uh, some anger arising and the thought, why aren't you paying attention? And we might be having some of those thoughts about the people we're living with right now, right? With the close uh, living conditions that many of us are in, you know, people we love dearly even, but can all of a sudden, you know, it's interesting how we're totally okay with our own habits of being unskillful, but other people's habits of being unskillful really push our buttons. <laughs> so I probably 
it would be a useful reflection to be much more interested in our this hearts, this minds, habits of unskillfulness, and more forgiving, more spacious, more equanimity with what we perceive as other people's unskillfulness. But the fact is, this is what gets our attention. And interestingly, how we feel, I do, I feel personally threatened when I sense somebody is being what I might consider unskillful, you know, less than perfectly aware, less than perfectly kind, perfectly wise. It's just interesting how that feels threatening to me. And, you know, this is um, related to what in our tradition we sometimes refer to as spiritual bypass, where we use spiritual teachings, but without a lot of wisdom. And then we get in this mode of wanting to retreat, like being on the highway is just too much. Being with my parents, just too much. Oh, they just keep watching this news and they keep talking about politics in this way. I just can't be around them. Or being with this person at work. Or being with, you know. And we get ourselves into a tighter and tighter place because we thought it was being spiritual, but it's actually being averse to the world as it actually is. Because we somehow have made the mistake in thinking that spiritual practice is about getting the hell out of the messy world, the complicated world, where people have, including ourselves, you know, we have these patterns of ignorance, these patterns of greed and aversion and distractedness and denial, all of us in our own particular ways. And so it's not a small practice to learn to be balanced and intimate when we're around people's unskillfulness. Now, I'm not talking about being vulnerable, like where they might actually cause us harm. So from a safe distance, like if they're really acting out their unskillfulness, but not be afraid. And this is a really important time in this, uh, where there's so much uh, divisiveness in politics. Like as we imagine people that disturb us politically, socially, because of what we imagine is their ignorance, we don't want to close our hearts. We want to actually like inhabit the world we're inhabiting, not be afraid that this is how it is right now. This much ignorance, let's say we're right, and our perception is relatively accurate, that there is this much ignorance going on here, out there. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.